0: Wait, I think I'm going to join a cult. (sighs) Said no one ever.
1: Well, Shell, that's because no one ever sets out to join a cult. Usually it's in a very insidious indoctrination process. And you and I both know this personally because between the two of us, we have, what, 37 years years of time spent in two different destructive cults.
0: And that's why we're so excited for a new podcast called... What What the the fuck? fuck. Where we're not only bringing on all sorts of different cult survivors to share their courageous stories, but also to unwind exactly how indoctrination happens in the first place.
1: That's right, Shell, because worldwide there's over 10,000 active cults that they know about. And the stories are endless.
0: But Hoyt, so are the people that want to stand up to this cultic activity.
1: And right here, we're going to provide a safe platform for them to tell those stories. So please join me, Hoyt Richards.
0: And me, Shell Roland, streaming on every major podcast platform and our YouTube channel. And you'll probably find yourself saying, What the Flock? Hi there. I am Shell Roland and this is Hoyt Richards. Hello. And we want to welcome you to our inaugural podcast and YouTube channel. And I say inaugural because we might be working some kinks out. This is our first episode, so bear with us people. That's right.
1: Be, be understanding.
0: We just got here a few minutes ago, so just hang in there. <laughs> um, our podcast is titled What the Flock F-L-O-K, so we don't get dinged on that. Mm-hmm. Cult Survivor Stories. So each episode, we're going to start with a quote. So we're going to have a quote of the day. And the quote is going to tie into what we're talking about on that day. So I'll go ahead and read our quote. Is that cool, Hoy? Go for
1: it. Absolutely. I, I'm,
0: I'm so bossy and long-winded mm-hmm. already. Here I go. Our quote of the day, The mind is your guard, the heart is your maid, and the soul is your territory. Nobody else but you should have control of these. And that's a quote by Gloria Gonzalez, one of my favorites. So, hey, Hoyt, <laughs> I, I think I'm going to join a cult.
1: Yeah. Uh, that's said
0: no one ever. Have you ever said that?
1: No, no, but, but people, people think that. Um, they, they think that's something that you would be aware of before it happens. And that's not the way it works. You, you do join a movement. You do join a great idea, a you, yeah. You, yeah. You grow something, but but yeah. No one's like, hey, we're in a cult. Come join us. <laughs> That's not whatever happens.
0: Right, and and once you're in one, you never think you're in one, and you defend it feverishly, fervently that yeah. it is not a cult. It actually becomes part of the groups, cults standpoint our dialogue is all the reasons why they are not a cult absolutely because everyone around them is accusing them of being in a cult we used to have whole meetings to talk about why we were not a cult and anything that was introduced that said we were a cult was titled spiritual pornography
1: oh interesting and we were
0: Big well, fat sinners, if we w- listen to well, that. Well, we
1: were also, we were very clear that there were cults, that they did exist.
0: Right, us too.
1: But not us. And uh, I even remember at one point when we got labeled in the media as a cult that we actually got a book. Now, I bought, I got a book about, you know, the uh, all about cults and the tenets that they kind of, and I remember reading it, but I was still at this point so brainwashed that as I'm reading it, I'm going, well... We do do some of these things. I guess I can understand why people think we're a cult, but I know right. I know right. we're not. Right. So so then we would have meetings, basically saying, "Well, let's not do all this kind of cult like behavior," because then it would make it easier for people not to think, you know, not you know, find right. out the truth that we're not a cult. So so that's how caught you are in that that spiral. That even though um, people are calling you that, you're like, no, there's no way. Even when the evidence is staring you right in the face,
0: right. Right. Well, it becomes part of your DNA to defend it.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And and, because that word is so triggering and I think, and I think um, that's always been my challenge when I introduce my story to to people, which I've done thousands of times now, Mm -hmm. Um, the moment, and I can bring it up very kind of inauspiciously it's kind of like someone's talking about a theme and I say, oh, well, you know, that reminds me of the days when I was in a cult and we did, you know, this, this, and this. <laughs> and people are like, what? Did you just say you were in a cult? And... And the, the problem, whatever way you bring it up, if I just say like, oh, um, you know, I was in a cult for 20 years, people immediately start, like they think about Jonestown, they think about right. Charlie Drinking Manson, and, you know, the uh, uh, the Heaven's Gate people. So that's kind of a hole that you have to dig out of right. to say, yes, I was in a cult, but it wasn't as extreme as that. Like I definitely had an extreme experience, but it's not as extreme as what the media has, you know, labeled as far as the, the ones you, the one, the one you've been exposed to. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I think I think that's the challenge. I actually find the better way to frame it now is to say I had a cultic relationship with a group because that Get someone to start critically thinking, going like, "Well, what do you mean? I've never heard the term cultic relationship,
0: which is much different than I was in a cult." Exactly. Even when you said that, that felt better to me. Yeah. Yeah. And
1: so then there's an inquiry, you know, of like, right. "Well, what do you what, what do you mean, mean cultic relationship?" And right, that's, and that's where you start to kind of, not unlike the um, autism spectrum, there's a spectrum between, you know, a really extreme cult like maybe Jonestown or one of these ones where there actually people are dying, uh, mm-hmm. versus a one-on-one relationship like domestic violence or any sort of abusive relationship that we've had where you, in essence, have given your power and authority away to, some, to someone else and you're still seeking their love and approval, that power dynamic is the cultic dynamic very, you know, you are accepting the abuse because you are thinking it's part of either training or it's your way to get the attention or love you're looking for. Right. And obviously, as you move to the other side of the extreme, then you have the group involvement, the peer pressure element, and the stakes are getting much higher. Like in our group, um, you know, we, it wasn't just one person trying to, you know, get their proof of. He, he had painted this picture that the end of the world was coming. So the whole world lies in balance. So that's like dialing the whole thing up on steroids.
0: Right. Well, and I, I think to circle back to something you just said, and and really one of our goals for even having this discussion, you know, with the nation, the world, is to really portray that stereotype of the weak, gullible, or or even dumb. I've had people tell me I would never be so dumb mm-hmm. to be in a sure. cult. I, I was in college, I was very driven. I wasn't this dumb girl. Yeah. So what I'm really excited about digging into is, is really breaking through that stereotype that you're weak or gullible or dumb. And I'm gonna I'm gonna say most people I come across that have been in a cult are the opposite. They are driven. They are idealistic. They are dreamers. They they want to change the world. I'm telling you, it is impossible to motivate a couch potato. <laughs> they make horrible yeah. cult members. Right. And we even in our group, which sounds horrible, but I'm just going to say it, and you and I will get into our mm. personal stories here in in a minute, um, and and give the listeners all the you know juicy details, but. We would purposefully say, oh, we don't want a, a, a one or a two-tooth member, mm-hmm. meaning people that have no teeth. It was a very offensive thing to sure. say, like, how many teeth do they have? Right. Because we were only going after the sharp, driven people that could change the world. Now a cult will take anybody. Sure. Their doors are open. Yeah. Because more bodies is more right. momentum and more power and you know, more bragging rights about how big your cult is. But we definitely wanted those people that would jump on board with us to change the world. Well,
1: yeah. And and they're better recruiters. Way right? better recruiters. Because you know I mean? ultimately, like you said, a cult will pretty much take anyone, you know, once they're in recruitment phase. Yes. But they're targeting a certain, if you want to call it like a brand that they think will be the best to pull more people. Our
0: in. word was sharp. How okay. sharp are they? Okay. Are they sharp? Right. I heard that word. 50 times a day. Yeah. They better be sharp.
1: Yeah, and and, and people's kind of reaction of thinking... Uh, those stereotypes that you name, like someone's really gullible or naive or or stupid or- Or Or don't have
0: things going in their life or needed somebody. And all of that
1: is really, I've discovered in in telling my story so many times, that that's a defense mechanism because once you get this topic out on the floor, someone's usually, if that person, that type of person's uncomfortable and all they really want to do is have you tell them, this wouldn't happen to me. And the whole point I'm bringing this up is to say, actually, this can happen to anyone because I was sitting in that same place of thinking this would never happen to me when it happened. And whenever anyone approached me and even had the courage to say, I don't know, it sounds a little culty. Are you sure? It might? <laughs> and I'd be like, screw you. You think I'd join a cult? You think? And I had all those same stereotypes embedded in my psyche. And, and I think that's one of the reasons we both wanted to put together a program like this. The, the best way to understand the the, uh the mechanisms is to talk to the people who've gone through it yes. and and very often the people who tell these stories or kind of are overseeing telling these stories are not people that actually went through the experience so there's a a lack of understanding and, and unfortunately a lack of empathy for what the power dynamics, how they play out and how you get affected and how you, how the dealing of trauma is a big obstacle. Uh, yeah. Uh, one of the things I've really noticed is quite often people don't even imagine that there is really a recovery process. They think whatever, at one point, at one point you get out of this thing, everything should be fine then. And that's like talking to a soldier who went over to Afghanistan or right. Iraq and get severely traumatized and comes back and you're sitting there having drinks in the bar and, and he's having a PTSD experience. And you're like, what's the problem? There's no bullets going on here, no guns. You have no understanding of what that person's been through. So that's why I think, you know, telling Mm -hmm. these stories of people who've gone through it are are gonna be really useful to people. Because by putting a face and a personality to these stories of-, of what, And a
0: context. Yeah,
1: yeah, and the context is crucial. Yeah. And so, because really when it comes down to it, <clears throat> the cultic experience breaks down in the, if you think of it like four phases. You know, there's kind of the, re, the recruitment, -hmm. And um, you know, um, seduction phase. You know that's kind of how it happens. I like to call that the perfect storm. There's, you're usually at a point in your life where maybe you're starting to ask some questions, kind of what I would call seeker mode, and um, seeking mode. Yeah, Yeah. you know, because if you're if you're if you're kind of seeing yourself as a seeker and asking questions, you you want answers, Mm -hmm. and if you find someone who, from your point of view, is giving you those answers, that's a great thing. And and I, I wish people would tell their friends and family when they experience someone going through that, that that's great that you're in that phase, which is what normally people say, but they should also say, but be careful because every manipulator out there will see you as a target and and potentially take advantage of it. Can I
0: interject really quick? Of course. Because how old were you initially?
1: I was 16.
0: You were 16. Yeah. Our Colts, which I'll share the name and all that with Mm -hmm. you guys later, main fishing ground was the college campuses. Right. I mean, we were on those campuses like white sure. on rice. It was just, we would swarm them.
1: Yeah.
0: Thousands and thousands right. of members of my cult. We got kicked off some campuses and for, well, you know, for forbidden good, for from good, going for a good there. For reason, right? No, right, sure. but because college students are everything that you're saying right now, they're idealistic mm. and they're, they're risk takers. They're out of the house. They're like, yeah. screw you, mom and dad. I can make my own choices. That's where I was at. I'm gonna show sure. you, sure. I am gonna change the world. I am special. Yeah. So you you're appealing to that you know kind of narcissism they have going on in that moment. You well, know? yeah,
1: you know, and and it's that type of thing of of where your kind of moral value system is being used against you. Your your, yes. your desire to want to be the better person, maybe help out the world, maybe help out your fellow man, become more spiritual, become more enlightened. Yes, that's how you're being manipulated, which right. which I think is the most nasty part about it. You're basically taking the best part of someone and using it against
0: exploiting themselves. it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it definitely is. It's, it's wanting to be a part of something bigger than yourself. And you finally have the freedom to do it as a teenager, Mm. as a, you know, campus. Yeah, I, I mean, it yeah. can
1: happen anytime. Obviously, right. you know, anytime you're in a transition of any sort, where you're trying to find new footing. You know, anytime I would say that you're vulnerable in the sense that you're just open to new possibilities. I, you know, that's kind of where I would say the perfect storm. You have to be kind of open-minded, and then unfortunately intersect with someone who can recognize that you're in that state, and then manipulate you. Correct. You know, and that's kind of where the yeah. so the the next phase is. You know, uh, really, when you get introduced to these groups. Um, I think the part that usually gets overlooked is why did you stay? What did you find about it that was appealing? Like like very often I think when you hear someone saying, oh, there's a story about someone in a cult, you inherently know bad stuff has happened, you know, because we all know bad things happen in these groups. Right, right. But what gets left off a lot sometimes is the positives. Because if you don't offset the obvious negatives that are somehow inherently involved. Then right. you start thinking anyone who gets involved with this group is some sort of, you know, uh, you know, masochist, which is not accurate because, you know, it's it's just like uh, if you want to compare the the battered wife scenario, it always those relationships always start off great at some point, and then it devolves. Really great. There's usually it,
0: love bombing in the it, beginning, and then it devolves
1: yeah. into this whole sort of mm-hmm. thing, and and so obviously that's phase two. And then phase three kind of moves into, well, at what point did the bad things start to kind of overcome the good things? And that's when you ultimately lead to a point when you're going to finally leave. And there's only three ways you you can leave a cold. It's either you leave on your own, like I did, I escaped, you know, you get pulled out like from a um, intervention of some sort of thing, which are are challenging things to do, Mm -hmm. or you get kicked out, which can be really devastating for a person's psyche. And um, my friend who's coming later Dar who was also in you know, Dar's Dixon, he was also in our group and he got kicked out and he'll talk about how devastating that was to his psyche and and then I think the most important phase is the aftermath, you know, the recovery mm-hmm. process. Like I said earlier, that's the part that most people are are really unaware of. And that is ultimately the most crucial part because that's where the silver lining will emerge over time. Right. You know, because you, you really have to move in the recovery process from being the victim Because at some point you have to just admit to yourself, I did not sign up for this. What I signed (laughs) up for was very different. And I actually signed up for something really dangerous and I thought it was great. So there's a victimization in that. And you have to identify with that initially. And from that, you start to educate into the survivor mode where you realize that anyone who got caught more or less in that scenario that you were would have more or less behaved the same way you did. So there's nothing to really feel shameful about. You just have to get the information to say, okay, um, I can learn from this. And that's where you move from into that survivor mode. And then ultimately as you start to, piecemeal through your experience of what were the good things, what were the bad things, what did I get, you know, exposed to that actually has been validated by my life. And I actually do find that to be true. So, or there are those things that you got influenced to believe that you're like, that's total bullshit. Like I, my life, there's nothing that you know validates that. So that's the kind of hard work. But ultimately through that process, you start to develop a new lens on how you look at the world and how, I mean, you, you look at the world around you and you see that there's all sorts of influence and manipulation tactics going on. And you actually start to look at this experience potentially as a real badge of honor that you not only survived, but you've actually gained valuable life lessons from this and now you can thrive so right. that's really it's the it's the victim to the survivor to the thriver and the people we're going to be talking to I like to that, here say that again,
0: are, victim to, to survivor, survivor to, to thriver. thriver
1: so we'll be inter- interviewing some of the thrivers because the whole point to tell the story is to show there's actually a purpose to it you know because a lot of the the programs you see about cults they, it all ends and you're just you just depressed you're like right. god dark. all these people got Dark pulled into this and they got really, you know, screwed over and this evil person was, was you know, managing it. And you have to kind of get into that recovery process. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't go down that road. And I think like in my group in particular, I'd say over 90% of the people involved have never healed. Mm-hmm. And that to me is That's the most disturbing part of it. Yeah. And so uh, I'm hoping by starting to change the environment so that we can make these things more um, comfortable to talk about and realize that the, the power dynamics are ones that we've all experienced in our lives. Like I don't know anyone who hasn't experienced a cultic relationship, but they've never realized that that unhealthy abusive relationship they've been in, that's the actual proper appropriate you know, clinical term. Right. And so then in the end, we're all needing to speak the same language and hopefully we'll be able to get that, you know, happening with, uh, with our conversations we're going to have.
0: Well, and I think I'm actually going to skip forward in my notes here yeah. because <laughs> you just brought up a great point. Let's go ahead and read the definition of indoctrination. It's a very simple definition. The process of teaching a person or group to accept a set of beliefs uncritically. Hello, who yeah. hasn't all day, every day? Sure. Whether it's an abusive partner, like you said, something that might seem a little culty, an extreme religion. I mean, we could go on and on and on and on.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'll, and I'll, I'll jump on that. The, the UK government basically defines um, controlling behavior as a range of acts designed to make a person subordinate and or dependent by isolating them from sources of support exploiting their resources and capabilities for personal gain and depriving the means needed for independence, resistance, and escape by regulating their everyday behavior.
0: Well, that was 17 years of my life right <laughs> yeah, there. Thank you for right? recapping my and, life. And, and so, what, <laughs> and,
1: and, but that's not saying, like that's that's just talking about normally domestic abusive relationships. Right. But that, you see how similar that is to the cultic experience. It's and, almost identical. And this article that, that I'm yeah. referencing here basically says, that's how common they are. It's just with... The cult. There's a group dynamic, and that's where the peer pressure element comes in, and all these things. So it's it's like dialing that relationship up, you know, uh, much more intensely. But right. the dynamics at play are something that all of us can kind of relate to, and I think that's what we're hoping to kind of uncover in this story. That you're gonna, I think you're gonna find as people tell their stories, which as I've done, that instead of them kind of coming to some sort of understanding, which is what I initially intended. Like I want—I wanted to own this part of my life so that we can talk about it. You can feel comfortable asking me. So hopefully we can all learn from this. But what I didn't expect and what I've learned in telling the story so many times is I got better at telling it. People would be looking at me like any good story you're hoping a person self-reflects. And when a person starts coming back to me, wait, it sounds like you're describing the relationship I have with my dad or my girlfriend or my boyfriend or my boss or my coach. Right. And that's when I started to really realize that this is a universal experience. We're on a spectrum. <laughs> we as cult survivors are kind of towards the, that extreme version of, of one spectrum. But most of us encounter these one-on-one relationships that because we don't properly identify the abuse that goes on and label it correctly, it's, it's just like anything. If you don't die, get the proper diagnosis, you can't get the medicine, you don't heal. Right. And you unfortunately start this cycle potentially of these unhealthy, because you can get out of that relationship. Most people gotta get to a point like, I gotta get out. But by not healing or identifying or uh, you know recognizing there needs to be some recovery from the trauma, you start this cycle of repeating that type of relationship over right. and over again. And then you, we all have stories of how we just seem, seem to pull these really unhealthy people in our lives. Like, how does this keep happening? Mm-hmm. And this hopefully will help explain some to of break
0: that. break the pattern, break yeah. the chain.
1: Exactly.
0: Well, it's interesting because the guest that we have coming on, on our third episode, Nixie, who was in my cult with me, I was actually in charge of her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank God we're still friends yeah. after escaping around the same time. I really had to, I didn't have to coax her to come on, but I had to say, talk about what you want to talk about. Yeah. I, I will, you know, put the ball on your court. I'll take over if you're not comfortable because mm. she really wants to talk about it. yeah, But she's afraid of feeling judged or the backlash. And even though her and I have talked about this for the last 10 years,
1: to finally say it publicly, she was like, whoa, let me think about that. No, it it's challenging, you know, It I, is challenging. You no, know, I, I think I think it it's counterintuitive in the sense that if you had a part of your life that was really, really difficult the typical thing is is to not burden someone with it, or or, or or you know try to spin it some way positive so that you can you can you can just say it was for the best. But the truth is, if you haven't really dealt with the trauma, which is you know which is hard to do because it is painful. But the way it's best dealt with is talking about it. And I can start initially in therapy or with friends or whatever. But ultimately, the the real growth of my experience has been is having the courage to kind of own that. Me story, too. You know. Me too. And it's and, and Brene Brown talks about this exhaustively, mm-hmm. which I love her writing. She basically says, you know, that shame is one of the most awful things that we experience. Yeah, we Crippling. experience. And, and the antidote to it is vulnerability. And one of the greatest ways to be vulnerable is to tell your story. And- mm-hmm. well, It and I, empowers you. It does. And, and, but you do come up against some people who are resistant to it because it, they're uncomfortable with you being vulnerable. But I find, that's a great litmus test to find out who you want in your life and who you don't, you don't have that. We all don't have to have a million friends. And if I have the courage to, to volunteer something that is definitely a vulnerable thing that, that I experience, and, and, just even the, the labels and whatever around it sound hard, mm-hmm. if I'm being judged by that, then that's probably not someone I need in my life. But what the normal reaction I get is people feel incredibly, um, supportive and kind and actually a lot of times they now feel safe to reveal something about their life right they said you know I've never told anybody this but now that you now that I've offered up the cult bomb and when that's <laughs> on the table they're like well that doesn't sound that you know anything compared to what I went through I, I've been harboring this secret and I end up sometimes having incredible conversations with people that are strangers just because I've had the courage to kind of just own this part of my life. I don't want to be defined by it, but it's a part it's a part that I want to talk about.
0: right. Well, it reminds me of a funny story and something you and I have talked about, and actually Nixie's going to talk about on her episode, which we were laughing so hard about. It's finding that that sweet spot too, because when when I first left the cult and started talking about it, It'd be like, "Hi, I'm Shell, and I was in a cult. Mm-hmm. Like, I felt yeah. the need to overshare, sure, which was part sure. of my cult because we had to confess our sins every day. And you had to talk about the nitty gritty, or you were in secret sin. It was like so such a part of our culture. Yeah. Confess your sin to publicly in front of the church people. Your your personal discipler that was in charge of you every day. Confess your sin, and I didn't know how to stop doing that. Yeah, and so." Nixie and I were talking, and when we started to date normal men outside of the group, because we could only date in the group, we both basically married strangers literally in the group, even on dates, I'd be like, well, I should probably tell you I was in a religious cult for 17 years. I'm very well, socially awkward. <laughs> and they, were, and the date was over, man. It's yeah, like, but, we're but, done. But,
1: uh, you know, that's very similar to what the alcoholic or drug addict goes through as part of the recovery process. There's that confessional part of where, if, because usually when you're in those states, and I certainly know for me, I didn't tell anybody I was in this group if I didn't feel they were safe. So I, I kept it all. So I just felt like I was hiding and lying, lying to a lot of people. When you were in it. When I was in it, right. right. So so for me coming out of it and wanting to be transparent. The
0: freedom to say I, it.
1: I went to the other stream and I'm like, I'm literally, I'd hop in a cab and I'd tell the guy, it's like, yeah, I need to go to you know, 54th and 3rd. Did I tell you I was in a cold? Yeah. No, really. <laughs> 15 years. And I would be like having to vomit it out just because I'd spent so many years putting, it, putting it up, yeah, camouflage right, and, and becoming a master of of, the, of that kind of right. you know, hiding that I just, I said, I don't care what they think, but I'm going to own it. And then eventually you you find your way. You into find the, that you, sweet spot. You, you find your way into the middle. The need to know basis. Yeah, because the, the yeah. shock value only works so well. and, and, and But and, don't
0: you find that most people are fascinated by, well yeah.
1: Well, I find, well, the, I've had
0: great friends just well, wanting they, to hear my story. Yeah, yeah
1: they, they find that you know they can't believe you volunteered it and then they <laughs> and then they want to know more and, and then they're like, are you okay? Can, can I do Can worms. About it? Yeah. It is a can but, of worms. But it's, you know, that's, yeah. well, hopefully like shows like this can make it more easy and and yes. realize it doesn't.
0: And that fast forward to why we are here. Mm-hmm. It's it's having it all. I think packaged up in a platform where we can share what needs to be shared, you know, in a controlled fashion. And I, that's and, probably and, what and I'm most safe, excited about. In a safe environment, in a safe environment, because
1: uh, anyone we're talking to, there's no judgment going on because we went through the same thing, right? A you know, you know, different version, but oh, it's but, a club. But, you know, but, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely
0: a club. <laughs> the cult survivor club. Yeah, I don't, rec-
1: <laughs> I don't recommend everyone. Don't want to be you know, a part of that, that club, but but but, uh, but like I said, everyone's yeah. had some form of a cultive right. relationship, so we're kind of all in this. That's
0: a great point, you know. It's a and a so I'm being a club,
1: and from that point of view, the the recovery steps that we had to do just to kind of reintegrate back into the world. Ugh, those same years. those same techniques can be useful to anybody. But it know? took years. Yeah. It doesn't happen overnight. It and does not happen I, I think overnight. that's one of the hard things to face is when you finally have swallowed the pill. And, and it's been interesting in my group um, where there've been such a resistance to facing the truth. Because again, you're avoiding the trauma, but you're also having to look at your life in this sense, of going back to whenever the first moment was when you interacted with this group or the for me it was the leader. I met the leader when I was 16 on the beach with my family vacations. I mean that that random. But that moment, my life took a tangent that affected me for the next, you know, 25, 30 years. Yeah. So you have to go back to that moment with this new lens of saying, you know what? At that point I started to be manipulated and on some level influenced. Yeah. And start to re-address my life with that new lens, reframe it. And that is so intimidating Cause for some people like, you know, the, uh, the members of my group, you're talking about 25, 30 years. They don't want to go there. They want, mm-hmm. so, so it's the key component to <laughs> that is humility. Do you have the humility to say, look, I got taken. I got conned on some level, which happens to us constantly all day. But when you get something like that of that weight, it's, it's amazing how many people just don't have... Yeah. The humility. And 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 it's just because it it sounds always it's just too big of a pill to swallow. But like anything, when you actually start to deal with it, it's never as bad as you thought when you when you were avoiding it.
0: And like you said, most people find that a strength to be able to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And it's very endearing. Yeah. Like I felt the first time we met, I felt so close to you in five minutes. I just knew you were very authentic. Mm -hmm. Who you were was what you were and you just said well, it. And I was like, oh God, I found a best friend,
1: you know? <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's it's something that I, I look at and you know, I talk about the silver linings. I think if I had been a cocaine addict or some sort of, I could recognize other cocaine addicts. So you, know, you can see the tells. Yeah. And um, this whole crazy experience that I've lived through has given me a kind of radar for sensing when someone's in an abusive relationship. Like mm. I, I can feel it me on them too. from the way they move, where yeah. they're holding themselves. You know, there's this kind of lack of self-esteem. And obviously at that moment, it's probably not appropriate to get into it per se. But if I can just show that person, because more often than not, it's a stranger, right? Yeah. Just show them some kindness, you know, mm-hmm. and and be tender at that moment. <laughs> It's just, I'm just happy that I can just be, I can see it rather than be oblivious, like probably everyone right. else is. So there's there's lots of um, powerful takeaways from this experience. I mean, we can't not deny what's going on in the world today. I mean, there's so much influence and control. I mean, I would, I would go on record to probably say people are having a cultic experience with the way COVID's been handled. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of fear and 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 uh, you know things being dressed to such a, an extreme that people end up in, it's polarizing. So well, same when, with
0: politics. Yeah,
1: whenever things are black and white, you're usually dealing with cultic aspects. Mm-hmm. You know, and and so it's it's um I'm grateful that I have that lens. Now, I don't I don't tell people that I you know for them to go through what I went through, but i you know it's given me some really valuable life lessons.
0: Right. Well, and I want to circle back. I was going to kind of frame the the rest of the uh, episode for everyone who's listening, but I do want to underscore the fact that with college students, I think all parents need to know this and they need to prepare their children for all sorts of indoctrination on campus.
1: I mean, I wish we could find ways and I'm looking into it right now of as, you know, putting something in the curriculum. Yes. I mean, I or mean, there'd it, be
0: a class it's, like, it's like it's the welcome like a, class. It's almost like it's
1: a, a, a class in common sense of learning how influence techniques works, manipulation tactics, mind control, all these things. Right. Whether you're just being manipulated in sales, you know. Right. Um, you know, there's there's this great book um, called Influence by, um, oh, what's his name, the guy from, out of Arizona State, Cialdini, Robert Cialdini. And he talks about all the ways influence kind of affect the way we, you know, uh, just get used or taken advantage of in life because we're, we're taught to socialize in a certain way. And, and the way we socialize is taking shortcuts. So if you're taught, like if someone's nice to you, you should be nice back to them. You don't realize that you can be manipulated by that tactic. Right. You know, And one of the examples he gives is, which is a very simple one is, um, uh, he says, if, if, if if you put one hand in hot water and one hand in cold water and put them both in lukewarm water, you know this hand thinks it's hot, this hand thinks it's cold. The water's the same temperature. So right. in, the, in the same way, he said, if I'm in sales, um, what I would do is i would what would be more important is the second question i ask you because the first question is going to check your temperature so the, the example he gives is at one point they were trying to help out a child delinquent problem in a little town and so they went to out to the people and they said listen would you take the kids these you know, these, these teenagers foot to the zoo for the weekend and everyone's like no i don't want to take these delinquents like a really really poor result They went back to the same area three weeks later and and this time asked them two questions. The first question was We're trying to put together an organization that can look after these kids and maybe come up with ideas. You know, it'll be like we'll meet like once a month, only probably be a couple years and we can help eliminate this problem. People are like, like, I don't even know where I'm going to be in two years. I can't commit this. And they're like, Well, could you just at least take them to the zoo for a weekend? (laughs) And now six times as many people say yes. Because if we're taught, if 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 we've used up our no and the person seems to be amenable and and kind of you know be trying to work with us, we feel an obligation to work, even though that may not be something we want to do. Correct. And that's something that is an unconscious reaction that people use in recruitment and indoctrination techniques all the time.
0: What's well, a classic sales technique? Yeah, I took absolutely. a class on all the different sales techniques, and that's one of that
1: one works. So you can teach kids that, yeah. so that that they would learn and have a couple more red flags available to them, because just like the idea. We'll talk about love bombing. Feeling good too quickly should be a red flag. But usually we're so needing to feel good that anyone who treats us that way, we're so excited that we don't recognize it could be a form of manipulation. Mm -hmm. You know, we just get pulled in.
0: Well, and I think with college students, just even putting that on the forefront of their mind, that people are going to come along and be real nice Mm -hmm. to you and offer this and offer that, because then when that context is there, they can at least look at it more critically, and go, okay, I heard this was going to happen. Right. Instead of thinking what I thought, God sent these people to me. If yeah. I would have known, no, it wasn't God. It was their leader who set them out with a quota to meet for the day on how many people to share their faith with. Right. I wish I would have known that up front right. than thinking it was some cosmic power bigger than me. Right. 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 So I just wanted to restate that about the college students because, you know, again... I was one of the people out there praying on them yeah, on the campus. I sure. wish they would have been warned
1: about me. You know, and and I think I think that's one of the challenging parts of uh, the recovery. If you've been a recruiter, and I was one as well, mm-hmm. you know, unconsciously. Oh, I'm,
0: let, But hold know. on, I was a very good recruiter. <laughs> At one service, I had twenty. We called them visitors. Twenty visitors with me, mm-hmm. the whole row. Wow! So I got away with a lot in my cult, I think, because I was very effective. Mm-hmm. So they kind of turned a blind eye when I was a little, you know, yeah. mavericky.
1: Well, I I, I was giving them a lot of money, so that bought me. You a were lot giving of, yeah. them, and let's how money.
0: much? Five million? Just say it. Upwards, yeah,
1: upwards. Of, yeah, upwards of, yeah, it's it's hard to look back at it at all. You know, yeah, it, it, was, it was in the eighties and nineties, but yeah,
0: yeah. Not, okay, not, well,
1: not chunk change.
0: Not not definitely not jump change. And you'll you'll bring that in in a minute when you tell your story sure. and where that money came sure. from and all of that. So, um we're going to frame each episode with three questions for most of our guests. We'll have a few or a few of the experts we might not do that with, but because there's so much that we could talk about and because we could go on so many tangents or we'll go down a, you know, on a very juicy story And I'll speak for myself, I get off track because something will ping in my brain and then I run down a different road. So what we're going to try to do is stick to these three main questions for each of our guests to really frame how this all happened. And the three questions are, number one, how did it happen? Number two, why did you stay? Subtext, why didn't you leave? And number three, how did you heal from the trauma and not feel like a victim? Or maybe they're still working on that, quite frankly. Um, But before I kind of officially pass the ball back over to Hoyt, because I'm sure you're all dying to hear his story, um, as I love hearing it every single time. But one thing I wanted to point out was just a few stats that when I left my group, these stats in it of themselves were like therapy for me to hear the stats. So the international stats on cults, there are over 10,000 cults around the world, 10,000 that we can name and call them a cult. As Hoyt so eloquently mentioned, we're basically dealing with cultic relationships all day, every day, when we give our power away or we're dealing with controlling people or abusive relationships or what have you. But think about that for a second. 10,000 cults.
1: And, and a lot of them are less than 50 members. So they're virtually invisible to society. Correct. So obviously we know some big ones and those are... So when you hear that number, <clears throat> I think it's important to qualify that, mm-hmm. that most of them can be... I know I met these women that have been in a... Um, a knitting group that became a cult. So, I mean, <laughs> great. You, you never know where, what form <laughs> yeah. it can take, you know?
0: Right, that's true. Or MLMs. Oh, yeah. You know, those yeah, are, they're, there's they're, that great they're, they're dock out ones. now. Yeah. Um, so, we'll just, we'll frame it around 10,000, uh, varying in, in size. Our group got up to 150,000 people around the world. It was in every major city. It is, even after a pretty big fallout that my cult had and a, and a splinter effect. It's still at 128,000 people. That's, that's enough people it's to a cause a problem, yeah, in, sure. my, in my opinion. So th- the other stat that really just floored me and, and helped me in the sense of, I don't know if it's the misery loves company effect or just feeling like I wasn't alone. That's a better way to say it. I, I knew I wasn't alone when I read time and time again that one out of eight people on our planet will either indirectly or directly be affected by cultic activity in their lifetime. We are almost at 8 billion people on the planet. That's a billion people will be affected by a cultic relationship or cultic activity, however you want to say that. That is a lot of people. That is why... I come across someone that has had a cultic experience, dare I say, almost once a day. It's just becoming a common conversation I'm having in my life. Again, another reason why I was really excited to get together with mm. Hoyt and to just frame this conversation and just say, let's just get our hands dirty and talk about it.
1: Um, well, you know, it's not it's not easy. To, I mean, it's very easy to to see how it happens. I call it the ripple effect. I mean, when mm. when I went down this road of getting involved in this... Group. Um, not only did I recruit some friends into it, but any the, my other friends and family, they were all un, involuntarily taken on this journey with me. You know, it's, right. it's, it's like having a drug addict in the fa- in the family. You know, mm. it's like it you, You're observing someone who's clearly being influenced. In this case, it was a group, not a drug, but the, being influenced to do very self-destructive and self-sabotaging behavior. Right, and you feel powerless to stop them, right? you suffer a pretty deep wound. And I think that's one of the the harder parts of the recovery process is not only doing your own work to try to get your own act together and, mm-hmm. and make sense of this this experience, but then you're also observing all your friends and family who got wounded right. in this process and more often than not, haven't dealt with that wound. right? And so as you're trying to get your act together, you're starting to observe them being in that wounded state and generally not wanting to talk about it because the human nature aspect of it is that everyone blames themselves on some level mm. that they could have done more, they should have right. done more, which is where the wound comes from. And and by only by getting information can you see like in that situation, Everyone more or less behaved the way we, we didn't know what we were dealing with. We didn't know how cults worked. It was nobody's fault. It really is like the that moment in Goodwill Hunting where you just say <laughs> yes. it's not your fault, but you you can't do the healing for someone else. And I think that's one of the, the challenging parts of the recovery process is you want so much to, to become whole again in your own way, but you also see the wounds in others that who you love who got harmed in this process. And that's where yeah, this thing affects most people, mm-hmm. and that's why I say getting the information out and realizing on some level that they probably themselves have had a cultic relationship that there's not such a wide gap between what I went through and what they've gone through allows a bridge so we can talk about it and then a lot of healing can take place. Right. But that's that's not easy to do.
0: Yeah. It, it Again, it, it takes years. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. Um. Okay, so before Hoyt shares his story... The last thing I wanted to say right here is that, and and again, this was also very helpful for me to learn, um, thought reform formula for all cultic relationships is very similar. The, The tactics, the tools, and there's some main kind of anchors that recruiters use Funny part is, I didn't know I was using these. Mm -hmm. I was taught them. It wasn't until I got out when I went, oh, that's what I was doing. Mm -hmm. So, which I want to talk about really quick. But um, if you think about no matter what the cult is, it doesn't matter if it's Jim Jones, fundamentalist Mormon, Charles Manson, an MLM, an abusive relationship. I mean, Mm -hmm. new age cult. I mean, we could go on about all the different types of cults Even the Nazis, when they were interviewed, used these tactics. Um, So many different abusive relationships that do this, but if you're using the same war chest, the same tools, the same tactics, but yet your group is so different, I like to say that it's the same party, just a different costume. Because it's the same thing that's happening to the mind in your life, in your relationship. We're just all wearing different costumes. Hoyt's costume and his cult was much different than mine. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. But we were experiencing the same thing. So when we talk about things quite often, we'll go, oh my gosh, we did that too. Mm-hmm. Use that word. We use that word all the time. You know, you're full of pride. You're mm-hmm. this, you're that. There's so many universal, I think, dialogue even mm-hmm. amongst cults. But the two that I want to highlight before I pass the baton back to Hoyt here is Hoyt mentioned love bombing. That is a universal, upfront, cultic relationship tool. Um, The accolades, the you're special, the no one's really known how awesome you are your whole life. Come to this group. We will remind you every day how great you are. But that really only happens in the beginning, just like with an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. And I saw it. I was recently watching one of J-Lo's movies, um, Enough, Remember that movie Enough? She was Yeah, she, was, while, yeah, she yeah. was in an abusive relationship and her husband, well boyfriend then husband was so charming in the beginning and showered her with gifts and just loved her and she was living this fairy tale. But then something happened one day and the switch was flipped mm. and he became a monster and she saw who he really was. Right, but then she's in so deep. They mm. have a child. Mm. She's stuck. He, she right. has no access to the bank accounts. She has no job. He—he's threatening her. You know, all these things are happening. So, you think about that. I'm like, that's how. That's what I felt like I went through. Mm-hmm. So, whether sure. it's one man or 150,000 people mm-hmm. with the group I was in, it was just so universal, which I found fascinating. So, people need to watch out for love bombing. <laughs> like you said, when you feel too good too fast. Mm,
1: so but, probably but, a little, potential red flag. Pay yeah. attention, yeah. pay
0: attention, look for the signs. And then the second one that we'll talk about throughout probably every podcast as well is just good old simple blackmail, whether it's called collateral mm-hmm. or an e-meter where you confess all your sins, or we had sin lists that we had to write out before we were allowed to get baptized. There's usually some sort of blackmail going on. Mm-hmm. And those are the two, I would say, anchors that I have seen in almost everybody I've talked to that has survived some sort of cultic relationship, yeah. I mean, would uh, you agree with that? Holly? Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, it, it really comes down to uh, power and control, right? Mm-hmm. And and money usually is in there somewhere if they can find it, right? Um, oh, there's but, plenty. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it's it's you know the when you look at Lifton's eight tenants of you know what he this guy um, Robert Lifton right you know studied the. Um, uh, during I think the, the Korean War, right? I think it was. I think uh, you're right. With, um, uh, he came out with a, uh, a book called, I guess it was called Thought Reform. Thought or, Reform, yeah. You know, uh, but uh, he basically analyzed the Chinese indoctrination um, techniques I because some that. of our best yes. soldiers were not only sen- signing you know confessionals against the, you know America, right. but then becoming Korean citizens. And they're mm-hmm. like, "What is going on mm-hmm. over there?" And just doing that work that he did, those eight tenants, can basically we'll go through them in another episode but there you see them in virtually every group it's like it's like every cult leader gets the cult leader handbook there isn't one <laughs> but but it's just kind of the way the pathology plays out right you know and, and it's really extraordinary and and so I think in in listening to these episodes coming forward you'll start to see recurring themes and we're hoping Patterns. yeah hope you know yeah that, that would be one of the purposes we're doing this is you sometimes you need to hear things more more than once to kind of you know let it take root but there's going to be a lot of commonality and uh yeah i think that's good to, to to reinforce because that's what you that's how you know what to look for and that's how you go oh i i can relate to this because i certainly felt that way and right. i've certainly been in a relationship where that's happened and so uh well, what's yeah.
0: the saying knowledge is power is that that's the same right.
1: that's right that's what <laughs> that's what yeah it is right and with great power comes great responsibility says spider-man there you go yeah
0: well, so without further ado, drum roll, please. Mm. Hoyt's got such a great story, so I'm really excited for you all to hear it. But um, Hoyt, so you're the first one that gets to try to do this by following our three <laughs> questions. So let's see if yeah. if even the hosts can manage this yeah. great feat.
1: Well, um, I put upon you. Well, I, what's our time right now? Just yeah, so I have AT. an idea. By
0: the way, I am going to embarrass her, KT, who is our producer, director, production manager, friend. I will at some point force her to put her face in front of the camera and say hello to you guys. So if we refer to KT, that's who it is. She's the production extraordinaire. All
1: right. Well... When it comes to my story, um, it's a story that you can easily research because I've been talking about this for two decades now. So I'll try to keep my retelling of it um, to more broad strokes because that way um, we can get on to other people's stories. And then, through talking to other um, uh, survivors, I'm sure I'll, I'll add anecdotes that I can relate to. Like right. You will. Right. So, um, so the 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 perfect storm is what I like to refer to as kind of how it happens of like where was i in my life you know and, and this is where the context is so important like it's it's not only important to talk about where you were in your life but also what was going on in the world at the time so right. for me when i met the cult leader at 16 on the on the beach of Nantucket which is where my family summered every summer and if I had one word to describe Nantucket it was just safe because hmm. small island you know a little bubble you know mostly white people kind of you know uh, you know quite affluent you know at least uh, you know doing well and it was it was something that you just thought there's there's not a, a traffic light in the entire island so it was just kind of a, a very kind of smaller safe and when you were eight or ten years Years old, your parents could let you run through town because nothing bad could happen to you. So there's virtually right. no crime, whatever. So when this guy sits down next to me, the last thing I think is someone could be dangerous, you know. And And, and uh, you
0: were 16. Well,
1: sure. So but, you don't. But, but I mean, and it was also a time when if you, you know, this is like the late 70s um, where um, there was generally a, a pushback on, on traditional religions. You know, people weren't really into the real. Christian sin and guilt type things. So there were a lot of people looking into alternative things. So right. that was, and at 16, I, I did not consider myself remotely religious, but I did not really buy into what I'd been exposed to, which was the idea of going to church, you know, putting seeing my dad, you know, put money in a till, and then having someone more or less tell us, you know, these are the things you need to look about, your sins or whatever. But if the fact you've come here, you get a clean slate, go back and have a good week. Just come back next week. And I'm like, that's BS. Like, you know, there was no accountability for what you did. Just had to keep coming back every week, put the money in the till and get a clean slate. I'm like, "Eh." so when this guy sits down to me next me on the beach. His name was Frederick von Meers. Since, Wait, what was it, Freddie? Well, well Freddie Myers was his real name, but he was going by Frederick von Meers. Oh, that's right. So he changed his name. Um, that's a whole another part of the story that that uh, I don't know if I'll be able to get into. But he he had he had gone. You know, anyone who leads these groups is you know is someone who who's gone through some trauma early in their life where they're now developing a coping mechanism, which is why they're manipulating everyone. It's their way to kind of get back the power that they felt they lost when they right. were very young. So he had reinvented himself as this guy. He was Freddie Myers. Jewish guy from Brooklyn. He was now Frederick von Meers from <laughs> Dutch descent. You know, you know, social register that i had never even heard of, but that's what he was all into. And uh, and he starts talking about Eastern philosophy and astrology and ancient civilizations. I mean, things that I was always interested in, but not something I'd like tell my buddies about. So the most impressive thing was he was speaking to me like an adult. He was probably in his mid thirties at that point, and I had heard about him from my other friends. Because um, they had talked about, oh, there's this really kind of wild guy, kind of like a flashback from the '60s. He talks about all this stuff, but he was considered harmless. So again, I had kind of had embedded to some degree by my friends, and so when he sat down and talked to me and and basically engaged me, I basically listened for um, an hour, and uh, and he used techniques that, looking back on it, were very effective of saying like, oh, you're so smart, you'll go, you'll understand this, and he would go through and explain some very highfalutin idea, which I didn't understand. But when someone says that to you, you feel you can't come clean and say, I don't know what you were talking about. You know, they're giving you a compliment and you're like, oh, I've got at least fake that I understand. And those are very subtle manipulation techniques. And so he would just, um, he rode his bike around. Like I said, Nantuck was very small. I would see him from time to time around the Island. He was always friendly and he always invited me to these parties. He was having a party almost every night. And it was like, um, And at 16, I'm like, opportunity for free beer. So that's why I would go. And it was interesting because he didn't do like a full court press in any sense, like the way some of these groups do. It was very relaxed. And he pointed me towards some information about like Hindu Vedanta, which is some actually some wonderfully inspirational scriptures. But ultimately, um, it wasn't until I got to university and I went to college in New Jersey at Princeton where I found out that he was, he, when he wasn't in Nantucket, he was in Manhattan. And once he knew I was going to Princeton, he's like, Oh, you must call me. You can come out with my friends. We'll go to studio 54. And again, the sounds, famous sounds, studio sounds great. right? Not, not what you think is a cult indoctrination process. I'm like, I get to go up to studio 54. Like this guy's going to get me in. I can bring a friend. He said, wow. yeah, you can come to my apartment. You can crash. So, At the beginning stages, I actually thought I was working him, you know, and I'm taking advantage of the (laughs) situation. Like like I I knew he was, he was kind of, I knew he was gay, although he didn't seem to be in any way actively pursuing me, but I knew he kind of liked me and kind of, you know, found and he definitely surrounded himself by what he considered to be important or or beautiful people. I mean, I, I have since found out from people who knew him from the time before I did that he would actually give out cards to the people that were staying with him that would have the address of, of his place and and say we're going to have a party tonight go and find the beauties but only the beauties and if they have a friend mm. tell them the friend can't come I only want the beauties and that was the ugly
0: was, friends couldn't, couldn't come that
1: was the way he did it and and so he definitely had this kind of I guess you would say pathology of he would judge himself by the people he could surround himself with mm. and so obviously I didn't have the you know, understanding of that at the time, I just thought someone's giving me the attention and I go to Studio 54 and he introduces me to these beautiful women. And I was just having the time of my life. And so that's how it started. And and it really didn't shift um, into being something much more um, serious until by the time I graduated um, this guy, Freddie had had a protege with him named John and John was kind of a kid who was my age, but he was like, he could just recite scripture. He knew the Bible, he knew the Vedanta, all these sort of things. So mm. so John was kind of painted as this person who was gonna become like an incarnation of God in our lifetime. And Freddie was here to train him. So when I started to you know, hear that, I'm like, ah, that sounds a little too much for me to yeah. believe. But then around that time, John went to a metaphysical writer named Ruth Montgomery who had had like eight or nine very, you know, successful, best-selling books about metaphysics, and she had done it through this technique of automatic typing. She would go in front of her typewriter and she'd kind of go into a trance, and then information would she type out, and then she would investigate it because she had been an investigated journalist. She had been personal press attaché to six presidents. I mean, she had a legit mm-hmm. career, and then she got into the, this thing later in her life, and through this technique. John reach out, reaches out to her and then she consults, as she called them, her guides. These are the people typing through her trancing. Um, she asks the guides about Frederick and, and they completely verify that he is this great teacher. And oh, great. So in her in her new book that came out in 1985 called Aliens Among Us, <laughs> four chapters, is about Freddie being this kind of, you
0: know, oh, no.
1: alien who's uh, this, you know, high, high-powered, influential person. And uh, from that, um, you know it actually shifted from being kind of this narcissist with an entourage of which I would partake with. Then it started to become a cult because then we had to have an office. We had forty-five countries and people from all different walks in, of life coming through, and we had to be make it into a business. So right. we had audio tapes. We had a we had a cable access show where you know the, the back of those times you could get on television. You just had to pay for it, and you could do whatever you wanted. And right. uh, and so we're doing that, and that's when the recruitment really kind of started. And and that's the same time that I started modeling. And uh, and that's a whole another story of how that happened.
0: Well, and. KT just gave us the five minute mark, but so I'm hoping what you could do because right after this episode we have your friend Dar. What's Dar's last name? Dixon. Dar Dixon. What a great name! Uh, And so you guys can you know compare and contrast and and keep going, but maybe you could give us a recap of the um, the modeling and Princeton because you you were modeling and at Princeton. Mm literally looking like this obviously good looking man at princeton playing football right? right so on the outside all americana family mm-hmm. nantucket princeton football modeling mm-hmm. giving upwards of five million dollars to this group no one knew that was happening so that is yeah so you know, fascinating. I, I, and
1: i think that's why i i've gotten a, a good amount of attention in telling the story because it it is counterintuitive because, again, that, that image you're describing goes against what people mostly unconsciously have to face. That they have a, a preconception of who yes. they think this happens to. And yes. then when I show up, they're like, wait, this happened to you? Like, what? So that helps short circuit them. And then the, the whole fact that I was living this very public life as a as a fashion model I was on the road 300 days a year people were seeing me in the, in campaigns and billboards whatever and the fact that that whole time that that's going on I'm in a controlled right. cultic environment right people are like what so that's where the story gets an in interest and uh, and ultimately for me the the more satisfying part of the story is uh, obviously I did get away I escaped um and I escaped in 1999 it took me three attempts I um I got caught twice. Yeah, you know, I wasn't. I wasn't really smart at the way I was thinking of escaping because again, I felt so guilt ridden of thinking about leaving. And I'm sure you can identify yep. with this. You know, like the the question a lot of people, you know, want to hear or, or ask, which is really inappropriate. Very often, is when they say, "Well, why didn't you just leave?" And people don't realize like how hurtful that is to hear that as someone who went through this experience. It's, it's kind of like if if I had had the uh, confidence to tell you in in secret that. Um, you know, I had gotten raped when I was twenty-one years old.
0: Well, and, what were you wearing?
1: Yes, exactly. That's the, yeah, that's the thing. You know that, and so yeah. you, you feel like I did something wrong. Yeah. And, and of course, this is where you have to own the victim side of it. like like I did not sign up for what it like. I will never beat myself up for what I signed up for. Now, what it actually was was something very different, Correct. which took me twenty years to figure out. Me too. But I, yeah, you know, the the thing I, I got pitched on was great. And that's the hard thing and that's the process and that's the recovery process is to start to deconstruct all that. Right. And that's where Dar and I, and you'll hear later, really helped each other because we found each other after we had both left. Dar had left like four or five years before me. We all both ended up in the same city and by being able to reconnect, we could be, we could be able to talk to each other because very often you feel on an island, no one's going to understand. You don't know what you've gone through. I was going through severe ptsd and luckily i was able to find someone from the group who was willing to talk and through that deconstruction that's when we both came to because i i didn't leave knowing it had been a cult i left thinking i was holding the group back i was this this dead weight that was holding them back that they were never going to give up on but i was a lost cause in my eyes and that's why i left right and so um that's where it's really been interesting to kind of reconnect with other cultivars and start to understand this is something that's more common than I realize and and that's why I think these stories really need right. to be told.
0: Well and I think it'll be interesting for you to share with Dar. Um I'm not I'm not even sure if he knew this was happening, but you were the abuse. And we'll get into some more details mm-hmm. that things sure. you've shared with me that sure. I think but it's... An,
1: Dar, Dar got plenty of himself, let yeah, me tell you. Yeah, the punishment, he, he the was, abuse. He was, he was known as Cinderfella. Oh, my he was God. Li- he had to clean... <laughs> classic. Even, even when we were going off to Studio 54, Dar had to clean the apartment. I mean, he was really... He was, Cinderfella. Yeah, it was not oh. great. Really terrible.
0: Well, and um, thank you so much, Wait again. We'll dig in uh, yeah, more on that's, the next one. Want to hear good, your
1: story as well? Well,
0: and I think what we'll do when I have my friend Nixie mm-hmm. come on for the third episode, I'll dig into mine, and okay. then her and I can, you know, compare okay. and contrast. She knows me better than probably anyone on the planet, so that will be, oh, good. you know, interesting. Um, and make sure you follow us on TikTok. <laughs> what the flock? Remember, that's F L O K cult survivor stories and Instagram at what the flock. We're going to have we're doing a lot of fun stuff on there. The stories have been amazing. Um we're definitely keeping it light and fun because I think laughter is some of the best medicine and it's very validating to be able to just I think have a, a silly take or it can be a little bit too dark and twisty. So TikTok and Instagram we're going to keep really fun informative also um and i'm going to close this out by rereading our quote the quote of the day because i think it sums up perfectly what um we had all we had talked about for the last hour the mind is your guard the heart is your maid and the soul is your territory nobody else but you should have control of these Guard your hearts and your minds, my friends. No one should have control of these except you. And we'll see you next time. Hey, it's Shell again. If you like our show, don't forget to tell your friends and hit that subscribe button.